one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, Irish Times second captains podcast and ears. Welcome to the show. Owen Murphy and Ken are here. Hello there, Owen. I'm Murphy and Ken. Yeah, I'm good. Ken, I'm good. A Chelsea footballer is among the 150 sports people that Dr. Mark Bonner has claimed to have doped up, according to the Sunday Times expose. Mm-hmm. A former Chelsea fitness coach also allegedly recommended to a Premier League player that he should seek advice from Dr. Bonner on testosterone treatment. Chelsea's response to this has been swift and unequivocal. They say the claims that Sunday Times put to us are false and entirely without foundation. Chelsea Football Club has never used the services of Dr. Bonner and has no knowledge or record of any of our players having been treated by him or using his services. We take the issue of performance-enhancing drugs and sport extremely seriously and comply fully with all anti-doping rules and regulations. Chelsea FC players are regularly and rigorously tested by the relevant authorities. Now, that's all fair enough, although it is a tad unfortunate that their brand-new manager, Antonio Conte, was a Juventus stalwart right through the doped-up <laughs> glory years of the old lady of Italian football. Yeah. Uh, and we, people don't really talk about that era so much anymore. No, I saw a tweet from Nick Harris, Sporting Intelligence, uh, saying, Antonio Conte, due in court today on match-fixing charges, instead appointed Chelsea manager. <laughs> oh, I forgot about, the, <laughs> yeah, about that other issue. Um, Miguel uh, Delaney had tweeted a thing from, uh, from the, he excerpts from the book, An Introduction to Drugs and Sport Addicted to Winning, mm-hmm. uh, stuff relating to the Juventus trial. Uh, this was uh, about 15 years ago now. Um Big uh, doping scandal in Italy involving Juventus. Yeah. Um, so club records produced in court indicated that Juventus's own blood testing program revealed particularly high hematocrit levels from a number of players. On two occasions, Didier Deschamps, now the manager of France, uh, recorded in, and a Chelsea player. Uh, oh, yeah. Joined <laughs> <laughs> jo- jo- Chelsea. I think, co- from, coincidental Chelsea. Um, on two occasions, Didier Deschamps recorded increases of 20% in the space of a few months. Deschamps' red blood cell count of 51.2% would have been sufficient for cycling's international governing body, the UCI, to withdraw a cyclist from racing. Reviewing these records, a leading haematologist, Giuseppe D'Onofrio, said it was very probable that Deschamps was among seven players who had taken small doses of EPO. D'Onofrio, however, was practically certain that two other players, Antonio Conte and Alessio Tacchinardi, had used EPO to overcome bouts of anemia. Uh, another oh. report have suggested the judge listed as many as 20 players involved in the chronic use of EPO. So, again, there we have an example of 
player who's got an unfortunate disease, in this case, anemia, uh, for which he needs to take the appropriate treatment. In this case, I guess, EPO. Um, uh, so that was uh, that was what happened there. I hadn't realized that Conte himself had, uh, had been... Well, sorry. According not, to no, Giuseppe Donofrio. Yeah, according to this hematologist. Yeah. Um, but look, it was all a long time ago, and everyone's learned a lot since then. You know, Lance happened. Lance happened. Football didn't seem to notice and <laughs> still refused to engage with the topic. Uh, Lance happened. A lo- athletics happened. The landscape uh, everywhere except football has changed a lot in the last 20 years. So but it is, we it need is to funny, yeah. That. It is true. Because that Juventus story existed, predated Lance, uh, certainly predated the full details mm. on the Lance story. And yet it seemed to have been seen as... Uh, Bloody good footballers, Don. Bloody good team. What was it Ferguson said about the Italians again? If they, I always check under the pasta to see, or under the sauce to see if it's really pasta. Yeah. I always wondered what instrument did he use to lift the sauce? The sauce is attached to the pasta. It's, mm. it's well, you all over it. Unless it's really badly made sauce. And it's so, just a badly constructed metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> and given it any thought. Not uncommon for uh, Alex Ferguson. I think. No. Richie Sadler's talked to us in the past about a regime of pills and powders that he and his Millwall teammates were once put on, only to be told the following year that the pills were now off the menu. Why is that? Oh, well, because it turns out they were banned all along. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't. So, anyway, he's had a peek into the issue of performance enhancing substances in football, and he'll be in studio in a little bit. Murph, you were all jazzed up. I don't think you're on any pills in particular, just no. the natural euphoria. High on life fund, high on the final <laughs> round of the Alliance <laughs> yeah. National Football League. The national euphoria that surrounds. Uh, Pretty much any sporting event at Brefley Park. In this place, mm. in this case, the meeting of Cavan versus Galway. It's, first thing you notice about Brefley Park is it's, it's in a giant hole. <laughs> uh, the stadium is far <laughs> below all of the... Near, well, all, the approach road that I uh, walked down, Brefley Park was about 50 or 60 feet below the in road. In a valley. Was, it's called a valley. Is, is it a meteor strike or a meteor crater? No, it, it looks a little like a meteor crater. How's it for the, an extinct riverbed? How's it for drainage? Oh, it's, it's actually, it appears to be quite good. I mean, my farming background would say probably not great, yeah. but it appears to be, well, I mean, there was a little bit of surface water now that you mentioned, but it, it, had, been, it had been raining heavily throughout the day, so mm. I'm prepared to, I'm not prepared to stand over any criticisms of the, um, of the Breffney Park pitch. Yeah. But uh, once inside, I was an hour early, and just as well, because the stand was, you know, highly in demand given how terrible the day was but it, like huge crowd showed up for the yeah. Division 2 uh, promotion decider between Cavan and Galway and uh, we, I was talking on um, on Thursday about the Black Death uh, the Cavan football team yeah. the ugliest team the most horrible to watch team in the GA's history according to Joe Raleigh <laughs> Top scorers in the top three divisions this year. <laughs> when did he say they were? When did he say they were the Black Death? Uh, that was last summer, right? Well, so maybe they've moved on. Summer. Maybe they've taken his criticisms. Let's let's stop talking about John. Mm. Well, well, they've taken on board the 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 external criticisms, and they're now the champagne footballers of uh, the Ulster Championship. Um, so they won by four points. Uh, Goldie had plenty of ch- had chances to win, but Kevin were much the better team. Uh, but it was weird, you know. It's like this game. It was the most important game played yesterday in the football league because, you know, the, the, a lot of the, the stuff in the in Division One had been decided. Cork and ended up were relegated on six points, which was pretty unfortunate. But this was a game that would define how Galway and Cavan would see nearly their year. Taking aside the championship, I mean, the, the idea that you would play in Division One next year is, is a very big deal for teams like Galway and Cavan. Uh, but the obsession appeared to be 
not ready. You know, they they're not ready for Division One. You know, like both both sets of fans were. Oh God, you know, I don't know. Are we actually ready? You know, for my my opinion would be that once you've qualified for the division, you are by necessity you 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 are ready for you have qualified for Division One. Therefore, you deserve to be there. Um, but I mean that's uh, and Cavan have to fit in, like obviously would are looking for that. But the amount of goal of people, I was like, well, I'm relieved. You know, I for one do not want to see us playing against the best teams in the country <laughs> next year. Uh, as if you know, two or three more years in Division Two would then magically have us ready for Division One. I. I mean, we're still going to have to win promotion to the division from Division Two. So I, I would well not be quite demoralising though to go if you do go up and. Didn't Westmead lose all their games in the league a couple of years yeah, back? Now, that can't do much good for him. Now they're in Division 4. Yeah. Uh, they went all the way down. But, I, you know, I, I think you would have to back yourself a little bit to say, right, Cork, uh, you know, Monaghan at home is a game that we can win. You know, Down were in Division 1 this year. Down, you know, a game against Down is a, is a game that, you know, any one of 16 or 17 teams in the country can win. And uh, this idea that if you go up to Division 1, like... What's going to happen is you're probably going to if you get Dublin at home if you get Dublin in an away fixture for you you're probably going to ship a few scores. Other than that, I mean it's mm. you it's a learning curve, you know. And goal I found out plenty in this this uh, like past ten weeks or so about players that we wouldn't have heard about at all up until February. So the idea is that just happens quicker and with more regularity in Division One. So why not just go for it? I you know it's kind of a, it's a weird. Uh, a weird frame of mind that people get into, you know. Okay, you've slammed your own county men enough, Murphy. We've got to move on. Shane Horgan is going to be talking about the brain freeze suffered by some of Munster's players when they were within sight of a win against Leinster. But Richie has arrived. Richie, how are you? Owen, how are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite well. I'm intrigued to get your take on this doping, as I say, football doping story. It's uh, encompassing a lot more sports than just football. But I think certainly the sense I got even on Saturday night I, I consciously didn't actually read the story in full until Sunday but I was getting the because I kind of wanted to sit down and take it in properly although I was immediately seeing tweets about how this is bullshit this is just one doctor um, boasting off the record about one very egotistical doctor it turns out boasting off the record about all these people that he's doping it's a nonsense story and we should forget about it do you agree? Well I think all that is true it is just one doctor boasting or, or, or telling one other person that he's done this, there's no evidence, there's no documents or paperwork or anything been produced yet and no names have been produced as far as I know, no. certainly no footballers. It doesn't surprise me though, like obviously that there is no evidence here, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if many, many footballers on a personal individual capacity without their clubs, without anyone, their coaching staff knowing about it would see a doctor like this to get performance enhancing drugs. It just that that wouldn't that wouldn't shock me, it wouldn't surprise me. I just turn around and go, well, well yeah, that figures. What, in in no way would I be would be I'd be aghast and go, my God, this is this is this is something I didn't see coming at all. Would that be the more likely avenue, do you think, for footballers, as opposed to there being systematic doping administered by the clubs? It's more likely that one or two would go off on their own and find these doctors I, I think so I mean if it was to be done by a club systematically you would assume at some point there's a group meeting the, the, like it has to be proposed as a group to, to your squad which then runs the risk of someone within the squad not agreeing to it and then being a whistleblower so I, I would imagine that's the lesser likely scenario so um, I, I, I would assume if you were a footballer and you wanted to get your hands on this kind of stuff you would very easily be able to get to do it you, I mean you've the money to do it you've access to it you'll easily be able to find out where to go so you would just do it off your own bat 
What did you think of the reaction of all the clubs who were linked to the doctor? I mean, the clubs were Arsenal, Chelsea, Leicester, Birmingham. They all put out statements saying, this is nonsense. Arsenal, uh, for instance, we strictly adhere to all guidelines set by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Our first team players participate in approximately 50 random drug tests during each football season. None of our players has ever failed such a test. Sorry, Ken, is that 50 random drug tests between the squad? I mean, it's hardly 50 random drug tests each. That would be quite no, it's, a lot. It's, it's, uh, yeah, but, but 50 d- between d- the squad means... Between the squad, yeah. You, you could get away with two a zero. season. Well, you could get away with none. I mean, if they're random and there's only fifty over the course of an entire season, you've a squad of twenty-five or whatever. Yeah. The random drug test that used to happen at our place years ago through the FA, three players would be taken at a time. So let's say to be generous here, if there was fifty tests, let's say it was three. That's one hundred and fifty times throughout a season. But if you're talking about a squad of players at Arsenal, depending on how many you include, it's a lot of players. And if you're talking about it on an annual basis. Saying you do it fifty times isn't that isn't that much. No, it really isn't. If you compare it to the uh, team sport, it's just it seems to me to maybe be easier to certainly avoid testing than it is in top individual sports. I mean, if you're if you're one of the top players at Arsenal, you're one of the, <laughs> maybe not these days, but you could be potentially one of the best players in the world. Mm. If you're one of the best athletes or cyclists, in if the you're world, Rafael Nadal, you know, yeah, there's well, not too many other guys. Who- yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if tennis is the best uh, <laughs> barometer of how stringent testing can be, but certainly the likes of athletics and cycling, you're going to test it all the time, constantly. And even then, if you're smart enough, you can possibly get away with it. It just strikes me that there's not a huge incentive to stay drug-free if you're involved in professional football, bar the idea of fairness and the fact that some people don't want to cheat and potentially be shamed. Well, there's, there's also the fact that, that you know... Um, I mean, there are a few arguments as to why footballers might be drug-free, well, not drug-free, I mean, there's always going to be, you know, drug takers, but why the why footballers might be less inclined to take performance-enhancing drugs than athletes in other sports. Mm. And one of them would be that if you're a football player, you, the, you know, the, the way that the sport is structured, you've got a contract, which is worth a certain amount. Okay, you've got win bonuses and so on, but generally speaking, the results don't really cause your salary to fluctuate that much. Whereas if you're uh, in an individual sport, um, whether you win or lose or, or do well or not do well, is going to make a massive difference to your bottom line. So maybe then the incentive structure is a little bit different in football. You've got the risk of being caught and being exposed and you know being booted out by your club uh, and losing your contract versus, well, you know, maybe you might play a bit better, but is it really going to make that much? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's one Argument. I mean, personally, I'm not sure about that because I think, you know, obviously, the better you play, usually the better your contract. One tends to follow the other after after a little while. So there is still an incentive there. I think. I'm, you know, there's also the fact that you know, if you're playing in a football team, there's so many people playing in the team. You're constantly talking to so many people. There's so many kind of journalists hanging around that it's just more difficult to hide. You know, it's a more difficult thing to. So, I mean, for instance, in the cycling teams, you know, you read about these cycling teams and it, it would be, it's quite hard to see how a football club could do that. There's too many people. Could do what? Could all be taking drugs and just shut it down? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know. The, not the, talk about it. The kind of organized doping that was going on in cycling teams. Everybody was doing it. You know, the kind of team was, was aware of it or organizing it. It's harder to see how a football club could do that. There's too many people involved. But that's where this comes in. You know, there was talk of this former Chelsea fitness coach, Rob Brinded, uh, acting as some sort of a go-between and, you know, telling a player that he should maybe go and see this doctor. Now, he denies this. The the man in question said he never worked with the doctor and, okay, he met the undercover reporter but decided not to take them up on this 
offer of getting involved in the project. But that would seem to me to be the more likely route. And it's quite we talked about maybe individuals going off and sourcing doctors, but actually individuals with the help of maybe somebody in the club going off and sorting something. Yeah, I think it like I did. I, I went off to see a, a, a physio up somewhere else in London without the knowledge of Millwall, just because they were offering a different kind of a treatment. And I thought that the, 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 the club would react angrily or the physio would take it personally. So I just went off and did it myself. So the idea that you, all your medical support and everything is done within the club and nobody would, would go outside on their own, that, that's, that's just not true at all. Um, I think it, it is far more likely that you would do it individually, as I said. But yeah, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't find it hard to believe that there would be somebody like the, the that Chelsea member of staff that was named that would be a go-between, but would very be very, very vague in what they're offering or what they're suggesting. Obviously, I'm not saying this fellow is guilty in any way at all, mm. but if you, you would often get recommendations of other people in the world with all sorts of different medical services that you could should that you would benefit from going to see. We talked about the issue of doping in football and TV, I think it was mm. last year, and I definitely got the sense from you that you feel that there's an attitude within football certainly a lot of football fans feel that for some reason footballers are above they're different they're different in, yeah. so, in some way a, a top level footballer is going to be more ethical than a top level swimmer or cyclist or whatever it might be yeah me and my fact you were just speaking about that but before I came on I remember a, a lot of people do think that I think they mm. whether they think that you know what, it actually wouldn't make that much of a difference to a footballer because you still need to have skill, you still need to make decisions, you need, still need to have a temperament to deal with pressure situations, you need to control the football, you need to be clinical in your pass and accurate in your shooting, timing in your tackling. All of those things you can't get from a needle. Whereas, say, a sport like sprinting or some of the sports where it's just about power or stamina or speed or strength, you can get all that from a needle. So some people, I think, will... Why would a footballer take it? Because it doesn't work. And, I, and I, I would disagree with that completely. Yeah, I think that's such an antiquated argument. Completely. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that doesn't even warrant a, a comeback, really. And then to think that there's something just ethically more pure about people because they are in the world of football as opposed to a sport other than football. Again, doesn't warrant a comeback either. That we, just, we just know too much about football from the how it's administered all the way up to the top of FIFA to how players on the pitch perform, e- e- even to how, how, what people say in the stands. They're not all there just to demonstrate how ethically pure they are. And I don't think footballers at all should be considered immune from a conversation just because there hasn't been you know, a smoking gun found yet. Uh, what I t- find most interesting about, actually, about the reaction of people is actually that it would mirror what what's happened in the big sports in America. Basically, doping is all right for Olympic sports and it's all right for cycling because we don't we don't really care. Like the general sporting public don't really care about like really, really care about it. Like if, if there was a doping scandal in the GA in Ireland, people wouldn't want to know about it because it, it makes it, them feel bad. Yeah, it makes them feel bad. And it, it, like the NFL, baseball in America, it's too important for people to actually face up to the fact that we've dedicated our whole lives to this complete farce where we don't actually know who's competing fairly and who isn't. 
and football is actually too big and it's too romanticized as well yeah. maybe there's a romanticism around football that maybe never quite existed around around other worldwide sports yeah people I, are emotionally invested in following their football team in a way that they'd never be with, like you said following a cyclist yeah, or a weightlifter now I'm, sure, I'm sure cycling fans and weightlifting fans might be listening to this going hang on a second we're mad passionate about our sports as well but GAA fans certainly yeah what we're talking about is is the is the the like a huge swathe of the population of a country or you know the in planet football, the in world, football yeah. you know that what you're talking about basically is you've been met a fool of and nobody likes being met a fool of and that's basically it <laughs> so, you know, like, so the response is then to think well I haven't been made a fool of I actually don't really care about this yeah it's, it's okay I mean if you've got a choice between uh, either say you've got two positions one is I really care about doping and think that drug sheets are terrible for the credibility of a sport and find it difficult to, you know, care about any sport that's overridden by drug sheets. And then it's, I really, really like football. You've got those two positions. And then you discover that there's a lot of drug sheets in football. Well, which one of those views is going to change? Because one of them is going to have to change, right? Is it going to be the one where you really like football? Or is it going to be the one where you care about doping? Um, and I think most people, well, what happened in America, like, as you were saying, is people were like, yeah, you know, does yeah, it really? God. Is it really that big of a deal? Should we care about? Uh, yeah, looking at the media, like uh, you know, should we care about? Is this this is big? This is big, right? This is, we yeah. we should. This is terrible, right? Mm. But this, but they still don't care about it in America. Yeah, they don't. You know, you see Super Bowl winning teams have loads of players who've actually been popped for drugs, and in some cases, well, at, at most, have been banned for four games because that's mm. all you get for performance enhancing. So uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I think in certainly over in America, they just haven't ever been bothered fully engaging with it and I don't know if that if, if that is the correct parallel maybe it is with football so yeah and I mean like you know there it, there is the possibility that football is too big you know the, the Premier League is, has too much money to for, the Premier League bubble won't burst because there's just there's too much money behind it there, it could be the case that football is so big that doping can never bring it down because people at root like football a lot more than they hate doping what do you think the reaction would be then if Let's say a team came from nowhere and won the league and let's say four of the players were found to be doping. It's not big enough number to say that it's everyone, but it's enough of a number to say, well... That's, a, that, that's, you that's know, made a huge that, that, impact that's actually, on Those season, four lads yeah. are much better. First of all, legally, what's the position? Like, would, 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 a, would a cup or a title be taken off a team? How, how many have to be found to be doing it? I mean, is this... Are we in a whole new ground here? Like, what has yeah, to happen? Well, new, new ground, I guess. If it's not found that the club themselves are guilty. So if... Let's say the four of us, we're on a team of whatever, a squad of 25 lads, and the four of us are off individually getting drug, or not the mm. doping, whatever. Yeah. And, and we're found to, to have done that. Does, does, does the club get punished? Will the, will the league title or the, the European Cup be taken from our club? No, I, I would you, say you know the four that? of us are banned and the, the club keeps their title. All the, Depending all, on how good we are, I think. Really. Also, all the commercial revenue, all the prize money and the you know, European qualification or whatever comes with us as a group winning whatever yeah, we won. Yeah, I think you're into a legal quandary there. Well, according, you know, this is, was one of the sub-articles underneath the Sunday Times piece. Colin, Colin Moynihan, who's the former chairman of the British Olympic Association, reckons that uh, you deal with this by criminalising doping in sport altogether. And if you dope, you go to jail, which... Go on, Ken. It's, just, it's a completely ridiculous idea. Mm. Well, I mean, the, a lot of the substances that he's talking about taking are are, you know, if you look at the WADA uh, code, the banned list, mm. um, a lot of these substances are also appear on the World Health Organization's list of the essential medicines in any basic functioning health system, right? So you're talking about, like, 
medicine. You know what I mean? It's not like that crocodile drug in, in Russia, you know, that melts your blood vessels. This is like... Uh, a lot of this, a lot of these things are, are basic medicines. It's like meldonium, you know, the stuff that Sharapova was taking, and that's like a legal prescription drug. It's illegal in sport. Well, it is now. You know what I mean? But it's like, how can you? How can somebody be sent to jail for taking something you can buy in like the chemist? A, a legal medicine. You know what I mean? The yeah, circum- but they're not taking. I mean, they're not. They, they don't medically require those substances. I don't. I, I. By the way, I don't. But I mean, then there, there just, are also just like accident. There are there are also accidental positives. Yeah, you, you have to factor that in. Yeah, there That's, are. Oh no, completely. And, it you does know, happen. The, it's the, the a, thoughts it's, of somebody. The thoughts of. Like, okay, I think Sharapova deserves to be disgraced as a sports person. Yeah. Does she deserve to go to jail no, for taking something no. that actually wasn't even illegal in sport a week before she was <laughs> done for taking? I, I don't know. A jail term seems a little. Yeah, no. Bit I, I think the idea. Of, it would be a good deterrent, though. It deterrent. I mean. I mean, I think a life ban is a deterrent. I mean, if you make life ban stick, I think that's a deterrent. But they deterrent. can't. This is funny. It seems like, according to Moynihan, in Germany, they do actually have, um, they have criminalised it and you can potentially go to jail for, I think, up to three years for doping. It seems amazing that some countries are able to pass that kind of legislation or pass that kind of law with that, and yet we're told that it's impossible to make life ban stick. And that's the lar- largely the reason behind them. E- even, in fairness to him, the British Olympic Association as far as I know, it certainly tried and I think succeeded in banning um, athletes who'd taken uh, drugs before from ever competing in the Olympics again. And even that was very hard to hard to do. So the life ban idea, I think, is right, certainly for the more serious cases. But apparently that's impossible to do legally and yet you can potentially send people to jail. But where And, and where would you draw the line? Mm. Like... The, the, surely there's degrees of, of offence in this case. Like as Kent said, there's some of the more innocuous medical things which you might actually take for genuine medical reason or you mightn't realise it, but it's so low down on the scale that nobody would in their right mind say this person needs to go to jail as opposed to someone who's part of a, uh, say, Lance Armstrong or something like mm-hmm. that who, who's been doing it for a long time. Well, one way... Where, do you, like, where would you? Yeah, well, one possible way of doing it is if you've won a gold medal at an Olympics or a World Championships that that automatically increases. So the the risk reward is there. So if you take drugs and you win a gold medal, you get jail. If 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 you're a gold medal winner, you get jail. What if but, you're a silver medal winner? But if that's you're silver medal, you know, like a free year probation service. For, yeah, community service. <laughs> There'd yeah, be a lot exactly. of athletes just hoping, just settling for silvers. I yeah, would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the guy who wins gold is probably going to jail anyway, so I'll get booked up. You know, <laughs> and then can you go yeah. to jail? <laughs> well, who knows. But I mean, like, uh, like you have to tie it into success because I mean, the idea of someone taking drugs to get from like a hundredth in the world to you know twenty fifth best in the world, I, don't, I certainly don't think he should be going to jail. Mm-hmm. You know, but the idea of going from tenth to first, I mean, if you're good, if I mean, I think jail is absurd to be honest, utterly absurd. But uh, I mean, if if you are going to have jail terms, it should only be for the guys who are going to profit the most, uh, whether that's through indoor through actual. Uh, prize winnings or endorsements and that that's the only way that I could see that you could tie it to I don't know I think if if, if you were going to criminalise this and you were going to put, give like custodial sentences for, for doing X, Y or Z I, I think you should be given a sentence based on what you did as opposed to the impact it had on your performance so if, if you're taking a product or, or, or some system, then that's that's what you're punished for. As opposed to like the example you used, if you jumped seventy five places in the ranking from mm. hundred to twenty five, or you jumped three, like from from four to one, 
It's yeah. you're still doing the thing that's outlawed. You're still banned. And I think maybe just the fellow who's jumping from four to one, he's getting penalised because he's starting from a higher position of natural yeah. talent. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Who, am I defending? I don't know what yeah. I'm doing here. I'm just but I mean, that, but I mean, that's the that's the court system. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like if you if you uh, punch a guy in the head outside a nightclub and the guy suffers a broken jaw, you're going to get one sentence. If you punch a guy the same way, he falls a different way, and he dies, you're going to get a different sentence. I mean, your action is, is you know... The, the consequences have yes, to be considered. The consequences, there's a knock-on to what you do, which you're not in control of. So if, if you take drugs and it sends you through the roof and you get a, you know, and you have a huge improvement, then, you know, that, that's the way it is. I mean, you've done the same thing, but... I mean, I don't know why we're talking about the criminal... Ju- I mean, but I mean, you know the point I'm trying to make yep. here, that uh, once you've done the act, the consequences decree the level to, to which you're punished. So, Ken, I, am I right in getting the sense that you feel maybe people need to lighten up over the whole doping and sport <laughs> these days? <laughs> what, what gives you that impression? Well, just when I was away, what was the doping story? It was a Sharapova story I was yeah. away. I was listening to you talking about that and it was a, a great chat, but you were... Talking about how antiquated the system is for well, a start, hmm. and how well you know maybe what what's the big deal? I don't put words in your mouth. Maybe I'll allow you to. Well, I thought the Sharapova case was really interesting because it showed what uh, doping, uh, I think at the at this stage, has really become about. Um, provided that you are rich, well informed, not necessarily one of the clients of Doctor Boner. Because no, he's giving you very basic <laughs> yeah. service. If I was, if I was one of the four people you're talking about, Richie, within this room, we're going to start doping. I don't know if Doctor Bonner would be the guy that I'd go and see. He seems a, a little haphazard in how he's going about. Well, of course, you know, you drugs. can buy something from Amazon to look after your hematocrits there, and uh, you know, you're kind of like this isn't this doesn't sound like a take a bit of this, take a bit of that. <laughs> absolutely top professional service. You may have heard of this. Yes, it's EPO. You might have heard of it. Yes, I've heard of EPO, <laughs> Dr. Bonner. Thank you. I've been a cover journalist for the Sunday Times. Obviously, uh, I've heard of EPO. I mean, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, but, you know, um, I, I just thought that the Sharapova case was interesting because what it showed was that a lot of doping now is not so much about how to take the banned drugs and get away with it as how to take drugs which haven't been banned yet, yeah. which have a performance-enhancing effect. So, in the case of Sharapova, um, so, so even in the Sunday Times report, even Dr. Boner, Boner, Boner. Well, it's Bonner. It's, it, it, Bonner. He's, he's, an, yeah. he's also not a UK doctor. He's, no, he's from Ireland. He's an Irish yeah. so, so He's going to your school, though. So. Apparently, apparently so. Somebody, and Richie's. How old is he? Uh, 38. 38. Oh, I'm yeah. 37. Probably the, year, probably the year ahead of you. Although it sounds like, he, yeah, he might have had to stay back a couple of times based on, <laughs> based on so the way he could have been was, in my year. No. He could, he could well have been. In and around. In and you around. don't remember him? No. Doctor, he wouldn't have been doctor at that stage. He just would have been plain old Mark. <laughs> no, well, Was it Mark? He might have called himself doctor at this stage. He seems to have a fairly high opinion of himself. But anyway, Ken, back to your well, I just got to do the, gr- do the degree. I mean, it's a formality. But even he... Surely I know someone who knows him. Surely, yeah. yeah uh, listen, anyway, I think you took it. You figure this out later. So even he, for instance, w- mentioned at one point um, prescribing somebody with the drug levothyroxine, which is um, a thyroid-stimulating drug to help them lose weight. Now, that's not, the drug isn't banned. It's just a drug, it's just a medical, it's like what you give to somebody who's got low thyroid function, or, you know, a low thyroid, I'm not gonna sit here pretending to be as, as good a doctor as Dr. As Bonner. Uh, Bonner. Bonner. But, finest. but I will say, uh, this, is, this is a medicine which is used by doctors to treat people who have actual, you know, actual health problems 
in this area, you can also use it to treat a healthy athlete in order to help them, for instance, to lose weight, stimulate production of whatever tyroxine, whatever hormone it is that that creates that increases your metabolic rate. So there are tons and tons and tons of medicines. Yeah, but that's like what that. therapeutic use exemptions are for. You're no, that's not what, that you need a medicine. That's not what therapeutic use exemptions are for. I mean, therapeutic use exemptions. Yeah, you could. In if, this I, case, if, if I medically, you you if don't I medically need, need this. You don't need a therapeutic use exemption to use a medicine that isn't banned. Well, that's true. So you can use as much of this stuff as you like. Now, this is something which what are looking at this particular drug, and they'll probably ban it at some point. They'll say, oh, hang on, we've, we've realized people are using this for performance-enhancing reasons. It's the same thing as with meldonium, which Sharapova, the stuff Sharapova was taking. She was taking that for years. You know? She was taking it for years. She didn't have a not, heart problem. Not doping, but... Not doping in the legal sense of the term, but without doubt in the ethical sense of the term, in that she was taking a medicine for performance-enhancing reasons, reasons uh, not related to any medical condition that she had. Exactly. So she was doing it for... And it, and it wasn't as though she was trumpeting the benefits of this. For, it wasn't like she was like Djokovic on his gluten-free diet, saying, oh, you know, I'm on this gluten-free diet. It's amazing. You should all try it. I've got so much energy. You know, it wasn't like she was saying, yeah, you know, there was, well, actually, I played really well, but I just do want to mention meldonium. It's <laughs> yeah. been amazing since I've started taking this drug. She, yeah. <laughs> I didn't hear anything about meldonium from Sharapova until she got busted for it. Mm. You know, so the, so the point is, all these athletes are gaming the system. You know, if you're someone like Sharapova, who's rich and, and you know, well-connected, is able to get sort of, you know, there's this stuff which I think really might help you out a little bit. It's not actually banned, which is the best thing about it. You know, here's a prescription. Great. All great it was up until the moment when, unfortunately, it's banned and she keeps taking it, though. You know, everybody makes mistakes. But, you know, that kind of stuff is going on all the time. And I think a lot of doping is taking that form now. And I don't really see how WADA can actually keep up with the development of medicine. Uh, they can't, and they never have been able to, and they never will. But I think they've got to try. Uh, well, maybe it's not even water, because the one angle we haven't mentioned about this is that the UK anti-doping agency seemed to have been sitting on their hands on this one and uh, certainly didn't take the whistleblower's <laughs> complaints and documentation particularly seriously. That's certainly the implication in the article. WADA came out with all that incredibly detailed report about everything that was going on in the IWF, but decided that Sebco was... Ah, not to know about all that. Well, he was. He sh he should have known, but he's not to blame. I mean, you know, this, we we can gloss over that one. So, to be honest, I am losing a lot of faith in those kind of organisations. So, I don't know the best way forward. But I don't think you can just give up and say, well, they're behind. The testers are behind. The methods of detection are behind. Therefore, you give up entirely. But you just you, the problem is we're ending up with the the system that's breaking down and the better. The, the better informed and wealthier people are able to game it to their advantage. That's true. And then you've got, you know, the poor um, the poor people who end up sitting across from Dr. Boner and he's giving them, you know, like the guy who got busted, the guy who got busted and claimed and then turned whistleblower in the Sunday Times report. You know, he claims anyway that he was prescribed this stuff by a man and he, he ends up testing positive, big surprise. And, uh, and then he's kind of turning whistleblower. You know, you've got people who maybe can't, who can't contract the best possible expertise. And they're the ones who are, who are kind of getting punished. And Dr. Bonner wasn't cheap, something like £1,600 for a course of... I'll check, I'll check that up, Richard. You want to make a point? As you make it, I'll just check up the numbers here. Yeah, it reminds me of a class I had in college years ago doing sports science. One of the modules was, I think, ethical and philosophical aspects of sport. And we had this whole discussion around cheating. And somebody came in from, I won't say the name of the, the, the sports body, but a, a, the British-based body. And... He said a couple of things which stuck out of my memory. One was 
he said, listen, to be frank, whatever money we put into chasing drug users, they've more money to outrun us. So we're always, always, always at a huge disadvantage. He also said that there are certain sports which within their organization, they'll just assume that everyone who's meddling is not clean. He said, there's certainly you you just we just know too much about what's what's out there and the sophisticated methods of taking drugs and masking them. You just can't win a medal and be clean. But he also kind of provoked a bit of a debate amongst us. He kind of said, what you know, exactly what you were talking about there, Ken, about the, the you know, where do you draw the line and why? Like what's on what's okay to take and what's not? And what are your reasons? And so. Like, where would you start with an answer to that? So we, we said something, I don't know, anything that, you know, does anything that medicine either improves your performance or something vague mm. like that. And he said, well, no, like a paracetamol will get rid of your headache, that'll improve your performance, so you ban paracetamol. So we started from there. And then we got to a point where we said, well, I don't know, assume it has to have some maybe harmful effect on your body. We'll, we'll assume is, is that one. And he said, well, so, you know, cigarettes, you know, that can have a relaxing effect, but that will also kill you. So you ban it. I was like, no, no. So no matter what we said, he had a smart arse response. But I think <laughs> that the, the purpose of the whole discussion was just to say that this is a really complex issue. Yeah. It's not a simple case of putting one list on the left, one on the right and saying, oh, if you go, as Ken said there, there are loads of ways around it. Richie, it's uh, £1,600 a month, apparently, for the growth hormone from Dr. Bonner, and also £600 a time for the regular blood test needed to monitor the effects of the drugs. So it's not cheap, uh, even <laughs> to get Dr. Bonner's questionable methods involved. Richie Sadler, thanks so much. Good luck, lads. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. New York was his town, and it always would be. Lopez wants it away. And it's a beat to left center. I know we're going to win. I have that attitude. I feel that way, and it's not overconfidence thing. It's football sense. Not easy. Onto it comes Houghton. And Houghton with a shot, and it's there! For the old left peg this time. Remember Stuttgart 88. It's Ray Hunt once again. It's Italy nil. It's Ireland one. This is incredible. It was indeed incredible. And if you've been listening to recent podcasts, you know, but thanks to Aer Lingus, we're going to be going to one of the great sports cities of the world, New York City, next week to produce a week of shows. The centerpiece is the live event at the Brass Monkey on Wednesday, April 13th. So that is Wednesday week, Murph. It's closing in. Mm. And as part of that live show, we want to announce your messages to the American audience. Missing someone's in this, someone in the States? Just email editor at secondcaptains.com with whatever shout-out you want broadcast. The show will also incorporate images and video, so we're encouraging people to send embarrassing photos that they deem appropriate. Beautiful. It makes a lot more sense and, you know, getting on the phone and Of course. To them. Don't think about it too much. Just listen to what Owen has to say on the matter. So get the emails in to your pals in New York ASAP to editor at secondcaptains.com. By the way, you should have received, if you are in New York or travelling there and you've applied for tickets for that show in Brass Monkey, you should have received an email back by now. Um, let us know if you haven't. But well over a thousand people looking for tickets to this rooftop gig. So uh, apologies to those of you who we weren't able to fit in. Murph did suggest in the football podcast that maybe 
Ken can take you all to the cinema or something mm. as a or, you know, I'm, you know, there are a lot of very nice museums. Uh, if any of you know a lot about the museums, then maybe Ken and myself could follow you around. You could give us a guided tour. I mean, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. I'm literally talking off the top of my head here, on. But I'm sure that if there are, you know, if there's any sort of an arrangement we could come to, you know, I'm open to all suggestions. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out now. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd like to stay alive. I'd say to you, please, don't say it to you now. Well, Owen, we talked a little bit about magic fairy tales, um, tax, uh, tax affairs, I should say, <laughs> uh, the Classico. Mm-hmm. There was a lot going on this weekend, actually. A whole lot going on. It was a very interesting weekend of on, on and off field football-related activity. Oh, yeah, we talked, don't forget, doping. If people haven't had enough oh, of yeah. that doping story, there were a couple of bit fresh of, angles to it. Bit of doping going on. Mm. Bit of doping. It's said is going on. <laughs> Simon, Munster, they really should have put Leinster away on Saturday, right? Yeah, they were slightly the better team, weren't they? And I think early on in the game on Sky commentary, Shane Horgan was saying, you know, if Munster kind of realise the position they're in, that Leinster don't have a whole lot to throw at them. If they keep their discipline, they'll win this game. And then quite a few of their players went out of their way to not throw it away but made decisions kind of once in a season bad decisions well let's maybe talk about what happened at the end because that's probably of most relevance here we're going to be talking to Shane in a second just for those who didn't see it the, the Munster have been hammering away at Leinster they won another penalty they were they, need, they were three points down so they could have taken the three points they also could have kicked a touch but um, they yeah, could, could, could have kicked a touch rolling mall and line out were working really well at that stage um, instead, Dave Kikoyne was the nearest to the ball. CJ Stander, people are saying, had time to actually stop him. I'm not sure if he did. CJ Stander has backed him up since saying it was the right decision. But Kilcoyne tapped uh, and went himself. He didn't, it wasn't the cleanest no, tap and go. It's never, it's, it's never encouraging when it's a front row forward who taps and goes and almost drops the ball. <laughs> and never did the best and, start to a move. And loses their footing a little bit. Yeah. Uh, he was stopped dead. I mean, he made no ground and he's a really good carrier of the ball. Yeah. And then I think it was Sherry knocked on a couple of phases later and that chance was gone. Uh, yeah. uh, and there was, uh, as I was referring to, Conor Murray in the 69th minute inside the Leinster half. Uh, chose to tap and go as well. Uh, very unlike him, he had a brilliant game. He was, oh, he was by so a mile good, yeah. Munster's best player. He looked like the best player in the pitch, actually. Yeah, I he thought. did. He yeah, did. He and you know, or in the first half, if Zebo had taken that pass right on the Leinster line, you were looking at a completely different game. So Murray was brilliant up to that point. It was totally uncharacteristic of him, but characteristic of the game in general for him to go do that tap and go. And just generally, Munster lost their heads a little. Shane Anthony Foley said afterwards, "We'd like to take it back, the Kilcoyne tap and go, but you don't get." opportunities to take that back and CJ Stander as Simon referenced there stuck up for his man he said it was a great decision to tap and go great call I would have quick tapped that ball myself where do you stand? Um, I don't think it was a great call I think you have to look at a bigger picture and uh, two points were um, were really required by Munster and may have a huge effect on the season don't get me wrong it's not easy to, to always think with clarity um, when the adrenaline is, is running and rushing, uh, as it would be at that period of the game, and also when fatigue sets in, I think we underestimate how um, many mistakes are made or decisions, incorrect decisions are made when 
uh, players are under fatigue. It has a huge effect uh, on decision making. So the uh, the immediate decision itself, although not a great one, um, I can understand it. Um, I don't think it was a great decision. I think it was a wrong decision to make. Uh, I think there was uh, a point there where um, Conor Murray should have had it in his mind as captain, um, uh, uh, sorry, and CJ Standard as captain should have had it in their mind um, that 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 if a penalty occurred, that that's what was going to happen. We were gonna, they were going to go for the posts. And I don't think uh, the overall mindset uh, for the Munster team was was 100% correct there, um, that even one individual had thought that that was the, the right um, decision to make at that point in time, maybe mm-hmm. before they got to that end point that should have been placed in their minds. So your issue was that they should have actually gone for the three points and taken the draw as opposed to some of the criticism, which is that the, it was okay to look for a try to win the game, but the best way to do that was to kick the touch and try another rolling ball. Yeah, no, I, I, I would have taken the, the, the two points. I would have taken the draw. Um, I know there was momentum up. I know they were a number down. Um, and to be honest with you, they should have probably scored a try before that. I thought uh, their rolling ball looked good, but just at that point in the game, I think you need to have a really, really cool head. And as much as it might be um, unsavory to swallow, if you have to, if you look at the bigger picture at the moment with where Munster are on the table, the really dispassionate decision, the cool decision was to, was to um, to take the three points. Um, and then when, and even if that wasn't the decision to be made, um, the tapping. The tapping and going when the opposition are a number down, um, it, there's, there's no benefit there or very little benefit unless you're, you know, unless you're a free run to the, the try line and he certainly didn't have that. Shane, there was a bit of a theme in the game where players made rash decisions. I mean, Kilcoyne's was, you know, an opportunity, but in discipline, say with Francis Saili kicking the ball at the base of the rook, when he was miles offside, I mean, that wasn't down to fatigue. That wasn't down. That, was that weird, wasn't calculated. Wasn't there was no logic to it. A, how do you explain a player of that standard doing something like that? And B, how do you deal with it? I mean, you're, you're letting down your teammates. It's such an obvious, glaring mistake to make. It's almost self-indulgent. Um, it was. And I think there was a number of those big mistakes throughout the game. Uh, ones that you wouldn't expect to be made and ones that are very hard to explain away. That was one. Keen Healy's wasn't a fatigue error as well. He got himself in a bad position, and um, although he may not have intended to do it, the likelihood was he was always um, he always had the chance of flipping the player over like that. When he when he it was very hard to get your arms wrapped when you're in that sort of body position to make that kind of tackle. Um, I think Conor Murray as well made a really poor error of judgment when uh, he tapped and went instead of uh, kicking to the corner quite late in the game. That could have had a, a huge impact on it. Um, I think he was trying to buy an extra 10 metres, but um, he could have. He didn't. He wasn't able to do that. And as a result, um, he put his team in, in a position that they didn't need to be. And ultimately, uh, both the defences looked reasonably solid right way through the game. They weren't really stretched. Um, so he didn't want to put himself in that position. But yeah, it, it, there was a there was a bit of self-indulgence there. And it looked as if both teams were were doing their best to throw that game away. Um, and we talk about discipline. And 
you know, the discipline of, of um, not giving away penalties. But, you know, that's one part of it as well. There was also a lack of discipline and poor decision-making in, um, you know, uh, how to how to affect the uh, the the opposition the best way, and I think we saw like you know a lot of knock ons we saw a little a lot of uh, looseness in the carries, a lot of turnovers, and there was a lot of there was a huge lack of uh, discipline from both sides. Is there say for the coin incident at the end? Are are there would you be set up for that scenario? You said that the likes of Conor Murray and Standish should have known maybe what to do in that situation but do the other players need to be aware that they have to just take a, take a second there and actually look for Conor Murray and look for CJ Stander before going off on their own bat I mean we saw the incident with England during the World Cup when n- nobody really seemed to be certain who was making the decision between Rob Shaw and the two players who could potentially have taken a kick at goal it all seemed a little bit muddled so sometimes maybe you can you can overthink these things but does there do, uh, you know, can you specifically train for those moments is what I'm asking no yeah I think you can have a, a you develop a broader game plan and or situation plan um, and I think that you can do that in training, but also that's a message that can be got on from the sideline um, a few phases earlier. If you you know you can see the way a game is is uh, setting up, and the perfect example of um, that is the that English um, situation in the World Cup yeah. where there was time to get on a decision from uh, off the park about what to do if those circumstances. Uh, came about and it wasn't it wasn't extraordinary that Leinster gave away a penalty in front of the posts given the numbers down they were and the pressure they on I think there was opportunity before that to put it in a number of players minds in a huddle to go okay if this doesn't happen uh, if we don't score the try if you know a penalty comes about you know you know keep your head on assess the situation and uh, that's not just for the as you said for Conor Murray or for CJ Standard to make I think you need your players thinking about the bigger picture um, in that particular game and actually at this time of the season the bigger picture um, in the season as well and it is maybe a, uh, it's a hallmark or um, it's as a result of not having as many leaders on the pitch as you'd like and this isn't just a monster thing I think it goes for, for Leinster as well um, and actually, for Ireland this year, I think we're seeing that there's a there's there are not enough players that are, are thinking about the game or, or matches in a in a more in a broad context. They're quite uh, narrow in what they're they're seeing in their own performance. Anthony Foley's coming under a bit of pressure, and will do I think in the next few weeks, especially if Munster don't make top six, for taking Holland off um, not long after a try and a touchline conversion. Uh, and bringing Keith Leon, who we know this season has been low on confidence, low on form. How did you read that at the time it happened? Did you think that's a mistake straight away? Or in hindsight, are we saying that was definitely a mistake? Uh, I didn't think it was a mistake immediately straight away. I think um, I, I didn't think Holland had a particularly good game. Um, he kicked well, and he did exceptionally well for his try. He was really good. But apart from that, he was quite passive in his uh, line, in his. Um, in the way he uh, he took the ball to the line or didn't take the ball to the line, um, he stood off quite a bit. Now he looked good because he was um, distributing the ball. When he distributed the ball, he looked fluid and the pass was in front. But he was never holding anyone in the inside. Um, it made things quite easy to to defend. Even though Leinster were, in my opinion, too narrow in defence, and I think that wider playing team are going to um, give Leinster some trouble. Uh, maybe that's they they just defended like that because they didn't think Munster were going to go wide. But I think that's a policy that they have 
at the moment and a team a really good wide team like uh, Glasgow with the full side will will exploit that um, but that's beside the point. I don't think he, you know, he challenged the line enough. He did kick his goals well, and as I said, the try was very good. Um, but Keatley coming on, I know, you know, you'd expect a player of his experience um, to be able to finish out a game like that. And um, I think you have to, to some degree, you have to back your your players. And I wouldn't, I I would cascade Anthony Foley for doing that. There's, you have a certain expectation level on players, and ones that are meant to be internationals are meant to be a high quality. And um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Keatley, apart from his first two touches, which I thought were quite good, actually went yeah. upfield. After that, it all went downhill pretty quickly um and he's in a real he's in a real tricky position in his career at the moment actually yeah uh, could you expand on that a little bit because uh, i mean we talked about uh, ian madigan last week who you were pretty very unimpressed by uh seemed to be uh, take his eye off the ball a little bit for leinster against connacht and i mean the, we're talking about ian keatley now who's still a monster player but is a guy who just has struggled badly this season and seems to be in a bad way confidence wise do you see a, a way out of it for him um, yeah, there's always a way out for players. I think, it, but I, I also think that he's not a young player either. So, what's your expectation of what sort of level Keely is going to reach? I think we've seen him for a long time. He's been number one in, in Munster for a long time. Uh, he played a lot of rugby before that, and he's never looked as if he's going to establish himself, you know, as a top quality ten. That's you know, pressurising Johnny Sexton for a, an international spot. And I suppose that's, from a month's perspective, that's the kind of 10 that you want. Um, that's not the case. So I think even at his best, I don't think he's probably, um, uh, you know, me, you know, he may just be at his best. He might be good enough for, for Munster to, to go where they want to go. But unless he starts delivering that consistently, um from now on, you know, it's not it's it's not going to be good enough. And you know, if we look, if we reflect on what's gone on so far, he's never going to be consistently excellent, um, unfortunately. And um, I think there's a number of factors for that, um, but a lot of them are based around maybe a, like a lack of confidence from him. All right, Shane, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Mill. Thanks, Mill. Keen Healy is. Uh player probably worth dwelling on for a moment it feels like we're being negative about a lot of players at the moment we're talking about the we talked about Madigan last week we talked to the, just talked about Ian Keatley we're now talking about Keane Healy but it, it, it's just for a player who was a world beater right from when he first got into the team yeah. until really his injury I guess was the neck injury that seems to have put him off his stride somewhat the, the fact that Jack McGrath's come in and he's not even he's not even guaranteed but he doesn't get his He's not the first choice anymore. It just seems like he's lost something there. Yeah. He's lost some sense of that bulletproof confidence that he presumably has had since he was eight years of age. An incredible age. schools player. Yeah, I yeah. mean, one of these guys where it's a joke how much stronger he is and better he is at everything. Could carry, could tackle, was a leader, all those things. And that uninterrupted success right through into pro rugby, winning Grand Slams and Heineken Cups and all the rest of it. And by a mile, the leading choice for Lions and probably the best loose head in the world for a while there. And it just didn't look like anything could stop him because of the way he plays. You know, mm. people couldn't tackle him. And it, what he did was repeatable. It was a repeatable skill, something he could, he could back up in every Solid in the game. scrum as well. Yeah, yeah really no, good. No, no real weakness. Really though. good scrummager. And then two, almost two years of injuries now on and off with various different things when he comes back. But every time he comes on now, he looks like he's trying too hard. He looks nervous. He's making no ground when he runs with the ball. 
Um, he just a million miles off the player he was, and he, he must be in his own head wondering when that form is going to come back. But uh, the mistake he made, in some ways, was explainable as a guy who was coming on and trying to get his place back and, and trying too hard, uh, a little bit like Kilcoyne did in the last minute. But uh, those tackles now just aren't going to happen anymore. Yeah, Healy's a, d- a different case, in fairness to Keatley and Madigan. He's with Keatley and Madigan, you've always been waiting for them to get to a higher level consistently. Um, particularly Keatley, who just doesn't seem to have, have got there. Madigan has shown uh, flashes that he can do it, but ultimately is having to leave Leinster first. Healy has done it for a number of years. and yep. uh, He could get it back. You know, he could. He, may, I don't know this, if this season's the answer, but yeah, you, you just wonder break what, over the with somebody like him. There's stories of him when he was a 12 year old being stronger than 16, 17 year olds, you know, pulling cars um, along beaches and stuff like this. Yeah, and he's a inline skater and like jumping off massive buildings <laughs> and doing big jumps and stuff. Just a fearless man. And uh, maybe his whole life he was stronger than everybody he came up against. And then he got those injuries. And for the first time in his life, he had to face the fact that there were people stronger than him. And maybe when your confidence has been so good for so long, the first dent to it is a bigger dent than, say, somebody who has blows earlier in their career and learns to deal with it at a younger age. That's definitely true. Um, I think, you know, in terms of um, if you're not used to setbacks, suddenly one, ha- one happens. But I wonder also if, if he's maybe just on a bit of an accelerated, uh, you know, physiological development path, you know? As I mean, he was a brilliant like prop at a young age. Like, and that's like a 12-year-old who's as strong as a bison, you know? Is that 28-year-old then... Wayne Rooney type yeah. arc, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Rooney had that kind of bullish physique at a at a sixteen, you know, at sixteen, and now he seems to be a little older than the you know the rings and the tree trunk would suggest. You know mm. what I mean? I think it's. I think he needs a run without injuries, though. If he hadn't had those injuries, I might agree with you on the Wayne Rooney comparison. Is he? What, I'd what like. To, I'd like to see him just not play for three or four months and then come back next season. See, I think I think it would just be so difficult for someone like that as well. Who, you know, you're talking about such in extremes of physical kind of exertion. Like it's it's the forces that he's subjecting his joints and ligaments and sinews there are just, you know, unbelievable. He's 28, but I mean, he's played a lot of rugby, and he's used to having full confidence in every part of his body. To suddenly be worrying, is that going to go again? Is that going to twang again? Can I really give this 100 percent? Or am I risking, you know, another popped, uh, whatever, whatever types of injuries that he's had? You know, it must really plague, uh, play, you know, prey on your mind and your confidence. Yeah, the one thing I, w- I would say about Leinster Monster, and uh, we're sitting here giving out about indiscipline on both sides of, uh, from both sides in the game. Not a lot would have happened in the game if both sides had decided, as long as we don't give away a penalty and we just wait for the other team to make a mistake. We literally could have just had phase after phase of the most boring rugby game of all time. So, I mean, obviously, indiscipline, you know, is an issue f- uh, from a team perspective. From a fan perspective, we literally wouldn't have seen anything else if someone didn't break up the endless phase, rook, phase, rook, short carry. That's no, true, yeah. If you're playing, def- particularly defensively, if you're not making any mistakes... That oh, equals man. a very boring game. Yeah, and I mean, it just—it was very, it was just really low quality. And for like when you're when you think back to ten years ago and the quality of at listen, this is an old an age old argument, and we've probably you know uh, kicked Irish rugby enough over the last couple of months. But I mean, the quality is just so far away from what it used to be. It's well, not funny. Well, I'll tell you where there was quality on display at the weekend. That was the World Twenty Twenty Cricket Final yesterday, West Indies against England. Before we left the office on, I think it was Friday, Murphy saw the West Indies. Shocking India at home, and I've rarely seen 
a crowd as stunned in my life. The sound of the shrieking, shouting West Indies players was all you could hear and you were seeing the partners of the players up in the... This huge stadium, absolutely oh, silent. Like, no booing, stunned. just completely silent and all you heard was uh, West Indian players celebrating wildly. It was uh, extraordinary, actually. So it was West Indies versus England in the final. England captained by Ireland's own Morgan. Is he England's own Morgan now? Certainly would have been if he won the World Cup. But any, enough of that. The, they needed 19 to win. They weren't going along very well for almost their entire innings, mm. West Indies. They still needed 19 to win from the final over, which is a tall order. Um, but not only did they do it, they did. <laughs> so they had, what's the name of the batsman? Carlos Brathwaite was mm. at the crease. Smack, you're going to need a six, probably if you're going for 19 runs off six balls. You really need a six pretty early on to set the tone, or at least a couple. To of give fours. yourself a chance, yeah. So uh, he gives himself a chance by hitting a six, mm-hmm. launching a six, and it's another one. At this stage, Ben Stokes, Ben Stokes is bowling, wasn't he? Yep. Starts looking a little panicky. I got to be honest, so, as you would be in this situation. He's thinking, right? Okay. Well, the last thing I'm going to do is concede another six here. I'm going to make this tricky for him. Boom! This one already goes out of the stadium. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> another the, ter- six. the third six, <laughs> the third six. Your man Brathwaite honestly looks like. He's going to he's dislocate his shoulder. As well, yeah. Like the swing he gives the third ball is <laughs> like hilarious. Like absolutely tries to destroy his old shoulder. Suddenly, West Indies need one run from three balls. You the could say level. the landscape has changed. Yeah. And what I found most amazing about it was Ben Stokes. I've rarely seen a sports person as heartbroken as a match is still going on. Mm. The, he's and he, uh, he's, he's the one crying who, big baby well he was close to crying I would say at this point he was just in tatters but he has to get himself up and just hope somehow three he can, dot balls means you know obviously you know they're definitely going to win the West, the West Indies are definitely going to win as the you game, said earlier he, he really chance. needed a hat trick because the only way you're going to stop one run being scored is by taking three wickets there yeah. just bowling just hitting the stumps every time which is not going to happen but he has to gather himself maybe in the back of his mind he's thinking well at least I'll make sure that they don't get another six mm. Yeah, he hit another six. No! Only needed one. Brathwaite whacks another <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> That's the way oh, to do it. no, really? Yeah, you got oh, to accelerate going through the finish line, Ken. That's oh, what it's all about. The great thing is about this, though, I mean, this is obviously not a very good day for Ben Stokes. You know, this, no. this is the sort of thing that could haunt a man. <laughs> yeah. But luckily, Ben Stokes definitely won't hear about this particular incident every single game of cricket he ever plays for the rest of his... I mean, how long will it actually take the Australians to mention this in the next Ashes game? Like, I would Three say, seconds. as they're walking out onto the pitch, the, oh, hello, Ben, nice way to lose the World Cup final for your country there. Like, it's... Whatever about... Like, say the John Terry penalty miss yeah. in the Champions League final. Yeah. Obviously, that's not a very nice moment for John Terry, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's... Along with the team that wins the penalty shootout, everyone else in football also laughing at this incident. Yeah. But John Terry can play a lot of football games and not hear anything about this. Ben Stokes does not have that look. He's a little mouthy as well. By yeah. all accounts, he was mouthing away at the yeah. drawing at the there's West like, Indies players you know, during the game. Well, as long as, you know, as long as he can use this to, to grow and develop as a human being, then maybe it, has, it wasn't all a bad day for Ben Stokes. <laughs> this, you know, a lot of learning. You know, that's what John Kavanaugh would say in a situation. Yeah. We, Ben Stokes has learned a lot. He took so from much yesterday. information yeah. from that. Reams uh, of information. Nesbitt fact. Alright, it's not really a Nesbitt fact. It's actually some Nesbitt news. And oh, I'm, happy, I'm happy enough. This is a slot that will evolve. It could yeah, go in course. any direction. Of course. Like beyond his news. Wikipedia page. Even. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> Finally, it moves. 
to oh, thanks very much to Johnny Mack amongst others for flagging this one up on Twitter <laughs> now it's concussions and Jimmy Nesbitt news that's McDevitt's entire Twitter feed <laughs> I've stopped talking about the non-celebration celebration you know oh shit yeah that's the third one sorry yeah no no people are still getting on to you so that. I'm looking at the Daily Express version of this story I mean everyone had it I'm amazed you haven't heard about it already guys it was the biggest entertainment story over the Go weekend on out. the headline Anton Dex Saturday Night Takeaway suffers technical glitch as James Nesbitt disappears. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. How did he disappear? The final of Anton Dex's Saturday Night Takeaway was far from plain sailing last night when they broadcast live from a cruise ship in oh, Barcelona. Nice. Why haven't we broadcast from a cruise ship? Mm. Oh, good time. The Geordie duo were left floundering. <laughs> the cliches, this is brilliant. After their ITV show was hit by technical difficulties when the signal between cameras cut out and they lost guest James Nesbitt. I don't know what they mean by the signal between cameras cutting. Anyway, the presenters were forced to go into an ad break after the embarrassing glitch, which came immediately. What actually happened is they, they panned to uh, James Nesbitt and he's just not there. This ne- is what they mean here. Nesbitt's just not, Nesbitt was doing like a voiceover during mm. the show. It wasn't a case of Nesbitt was supposed to be on a video link or something. and uh, No, it seemed to be a live link up and he just wasn't there. He disappeared, Harry Houdini like. So the presenters decided to go to. And, what does it say here? Um. Oh yeah, the presenters were forced to go into an ad break after the embarrassing glitch, which came immediately after their chat with little Anton Deck. Little Anton Deck, you can guess her. Uh, Kid versions of Anton Deck. Uh, Anthony McPartland, he gets his real name here for the first time ever mentioned. Just to mix it up. Had started. Let's go back to our star guest announcer. What's coming up, Jimmy? Jimmy? What's coming up, Jimmy? Oh, we can't hear him. His companion, Declan... Uh, Donnelly. Donnelly. Then stepped in. Oh, we're going to a break. We'll see him after the break. They later blamed the problems on the fact that they were hosting the programme from a boat docked in Spain. However, this didn't stop the amusing speculation on Twitter. Sorry, Sorry, not, the speculation wasn't that amusing. Has Sorry. he gone to the toilet? Has he gone for a pint? You know, the usual kind of stuff. So, this was in a newspaper? Yeah. What newspaper? <laughs> multiple multiple what? newspapers. Multiple, loads of them. Why? And index Saturday Night Takeaway is... Watched by millions. Since, millions when, is, since when is the technical difficulty on a TV show a news story? James um, Nesbitt Ken. disappeared. Can he disappear? Where did he go, Ken? He, he was, we, we, we may never find out. There was a technical difficulty. Why is that? What newspaper was that? Well, this one is the Express. It's in loads of... It's in the... The, the Express. Any you know, of Alex Ferguson could... subscribed to that newspaper for yeah. like half a century. Yeah. Probably still... Probably read about that, actually. He did, yeah. Over Bloody his hell. breakfast. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Nesbitt's not going to like that. I better Said give... Ferguson over better send Jimmy a text. Yeah. Hope, hope he is a United fan, okay. isn't he? Uh, uh, I'm sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, no, Could that be the Jimmy Desmond update that puts a bullet in the Jimmy Desmond update? <laughs> who knows? Oh, who knows? Disappeared. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Live on television. <laughs> Whatever next. Showbiz, Ken. That's showbiz. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Owen. Thanks, Thanks Kieran. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening. Do have a listen to the football podcast. Loads of great stuff in that one. And a reminder to get your emails in if you've got anyone over in New York who you want to communicate with via the medium of the Irish Times Second Caps podcast, then drop us an email. What is the address we're using for that? It's editor at secondcaptains.com. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 